Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&As. It's Thursday morning, so hopefully people had enough time to get their questions in, but let's jump in and see what we got. First up, David Madden wanted to chime in on the conversation regarding watching Laserdiscs on a Sony HD CRT. And David has an XBR 910, which is closely similar to the XBR 960 we talked about last week. And they found that Laserdiscs look somewhat grainy, and the color saturation seems lower than it should be. So to answer Shane's question, they've tried the Tink 2X, an Extron 204, and some random DVD recorder with a nice comb filter, and all of them produced different looking output, but not necessarily better than just plugging the LaserDisc player directly into the TV. The biggest improvement came from upgrading from their industrial players to a mid-range 1995 era CLD D504, because there's a lot of variation in picture quality between LaserDisc players. And finally, the single best recommendation they could make for watching Laserdiscs on widescreen HD CRTs is to just sit farther away from the set to allow the image to coalesce. They realize it sounds elementary, but it improves the viewing experience noticeably. Do that, crank the sound, and enjoy the movie. So I agree with everything David said, but I still think it comes back a lot to deinterlacing, because remember, all of these HD CRTs do, or most of these HD CRTs, almost all of them do some sort of deinterlacing, and sometimes they uh, have different modes. It's actually one of the rare moments I've seen Bob deinterlacing built into a TV was a Panasonic Tau that I had, the 4x3 version, had that as an option. So it could have been, it could have been one of those settings. Um, setting a little bit, sitting a little farther back is definitely something that I think would be pretty cool. But honestly, this is just one of those things that your eyes are going to be, everyone's eyes are different and everybody's experience is going to be different. If you really wanted a true interlaced look, you could try the Tink 2X with its CRT simulate scan lines. So it just alternates the scan lines and essentially would make it look identical to what it would have been if the XBR 960 processed 480i natively. You could try any of the other deinterlacing methods I mentioned last week, including the Tink 5X, which could even output in that type of mode. But basically, everybody's experience is going to be different. And if you have a PVM, like I think you mentioned last week, that might just be the best way. Next up, a couple of questions from Tony Escobar. First, they have an HDMI modified GameCube. So I'm assuming that's a GameCube with the HDMI internal mod done to it. And they're looking to connect it to their PVM. I'm assuming it's the PVM 14L5 that Tony mentions later on in this conversation. So that should make things easier. My, my answer to that is going to just depend on your setup. 
So if you have, let's say, a SCART switch with a bunch of SCART stuff going into it and then a SCART to BNC cable going into your multi-format 14L5, I would say get an HDMI to VGA converter. That one that, uh, the ones that Kuro found uh, were pretty cheap and very high quality. And then just get an HD15 to SCART and you could integrate it right in. Now that should work fine. However, if you have an all component setup or if you were plugging directly into the PVM, I would get component video just because that's easier. And you might run into some issues with 480i content. Some of the cheap DACs that I've recommended over the years have started to change, and it's still hard to figure out if there's a brand that's reliable or not. When I first put up that page years ago, you could buy 10 HDMI to component converters and nine would work and one would not work with 15 kilohertz. And it's starting to lean more towards the other side now. So for 480p, that should work absolutely perfect. Um, for 480i, you might need to start out with 480p and then toggle it back. And you would do that toggling on your GameCube. That would just be whether you, uh, if you're looking to do 15 kilohertz out, you would just have to turn the line doubler on and off on your PVM. And that should kick in the uh, digital to analog converter, but I'm really hoping that a member of the community would be able to finish up the project that they've been working on that would be guaranteed to work. It would be a lot more expensive. We're probably talking 50, 60 instead of 25, 30, but I mean, it would be guaranteed to work. So, uh, so yeah, I, I would choose either one of those. The other question is a little more tricky. Um, their DC digital modded Dreamcast won't connect properly to their PVM 1405. It loses signal on both 15 and 31 kilohertz frequencies after the BIOS boots up. They could see the Dreamcast BIOS both in 480i and 480p, depending on the setting of the retro access cable, but the actual ROM on their mode won't fire up the game. However, it fires up just fine via HDMI to LCD. Incidentally, they were able to load up a homebrew game without any difficulty. So that's interesting. So what you're saying is, if you boot this Dreamcast only connected to HDMI, and you load a game through the modes menu, it works fine. But if you unplug HDMI and you plug in a retro access SCART cable, then what, uh, it'll load to the mode, but it won't load most games? That's odd. I'm actually wondering if there's any setting in the DC Digital that's messing with it if there's a force resolution setting or something like that. Um, if you wanted an alternative for the Dreamcast, what I would actually suggest is getting a very, very cheap Dreamcast VGA cable, kind of like the ones I discussed last week, and then picking up an HD15 to SCART. And while that's 480p only, that won't matter for your 14L5. You won't have to spend a lot of money. Um, they're probably decent enough quality, and everything should be should just fall right into place with that. It's certainly a cheaper investment than buying any of the higher end solutions. And it's a, you know, that's one of those tool in the toolbox things that you'll probably use at some other point when you're messing with this stuff. If you wanted the component cables, the component cables from retro gaming cables would certainly be a pretty neat way to test that out as well. They're a lot more expensive. So if I wouldn't buy those just for a test, but if you thought at any point you might be needing component video as well, that would be what would be a good purchase. So that's an interesting one. Definitely keep us uh, posted on that and let us know what happened. And hopefully the GameCube stuff should be fine, but I'll leave links to everything just in case. Next up, Dustin Madison wanted to know if I had any tips for people who were traveling 
when they weren't feeling well or had health issues because I had spent years traveling around the planet for the company that I used to work for, which is still a trip that I say that out loud because I never went anywhere as a kid. But um, honestly, I have nothing for you because I was so lucky that I never had any serious issues while traveling. The worst things that happened is I cracked a tooth in LA and I had to wait to fly home to fix it, but it wasn't even that painful. And one time in Taiwan, I started to get sick the day of the flight and thought, ah, maybe it's just I'm tired and woke up like six hours into an 18 hour flight really sick. Like, ah, that sucks. But I just got home, took a bunch of medicine, slept it off for a couple of days. So I've really just been nothing but lucky. And the only regular thing I had to deal with on these trips were hangovers, which, believe it or not, sometimes helped with time changes because you, you know, you have a 12 hour time difference or even a, you know, like a a longer time difference uh, or a shorter time difference on different sides of the US, you land with a hangover, your body just thinks you're hungover, you wake up and there's no jet lag the next day. So I don't know how well that would do to me in my 40s. But in my late 20s, that was a, a great way of adjusting to time differences. But yeah, I'm sorry, Dustin, I don't have anything for you whatsoever on that. Just out of sheer luck. Um, I don't know if I how comfortable I'd even be traveling with any kind of illness, whether it's contagious or not, you know, it's just, it sucks. And it's, it's one of those like creature comfort things, you know, like you're sick at home, but you know where everything is, you know how to get everything you need. Imagine being in another country where you don't speak the language and you're trying to explain, you know, this hurts, that hurts. It's, uh, it's hard enough to do to doctors that speak your own language. So I got nothing for you. I'm really sorry. One more from Tony Escobar. Tony wanted to follow up on the conversation from last week about RetroNAS not working right with their mister. And I sent my CIFS file, the file that tells mister check out ROMs on a network connection, not locally. And it seemed to work for Tony. One of the things that was kind of interesting, though, is just for testing sake, um, for nerdy scientist completionist sake, as Tony put it, I love that. Um, they flashed a smaller card and tried their original CIFS file to try to do the advanced install. Once again, it failed and killed the Wi-Fi detection on the card. They then flashed their 64 gigabyte card again, this time modified the CIFS file using the one that I had shared, and it worked. So I'm not really sure what the what the problem could have been, but I'm also having a crazy Wi-Fi issue with Mr., and I've talked to the team on it. Sorg was trying to recreate it, but couldn't. So, I mean, shout out to Sorg, right? If he can't, if he's trying to, to help fix this, but can't recreate it, what could he do? That's not sarcasm. That's just being literal. So, but the problem I'm having is if I flash a mister with Mr. Fusion, which has the latest Linux update as of May or March of 23, and that all works fine. Wi-Fi comes right up. Bluetooth comes right up. There's no problems. But if I run any of the update files that get the latest Linux version from November, Wi-Fi just doesn't work anymore. Or sometimes it'll work, but only if you first plug in your network connection, which a bunch of us, a bunch of us fellow nerds have discovered by accident because it's like, okay, we tried everything to get Wi-Fi working. Let me just plug it into the network. And as soon as you plug the network cable in, your Wi-Fi emblem comes on. And it's like, whoa, what the hell? Uh, so that's an issue I'm definitely having. And I've always had Wi-Fi issues with uh, with Mr. One of the things, on, and by the way, when I say on Mr., I even mean with a DE10 Nano and nothing else other than a USB hub, 
and even a powered USB hub to make sure that it's not a power draw issue. Because a lot of people suggest to make sure you try a different power supply. That was always the first thing I tried. Um, so even when you're removing the case, the IO board, you're removing the power supply, like when you, when you really just strip it down to bare metal, I still had the issue for years. And sometimes the way to fix it would be to boot the mister first and then plug the Wi-Fi in afterwards. And sometimes that would work. In fact, most of the time, like if you wait till Mr. gets to the main screen, you know, give it a couple seconds, then plug the Wi-Fi in, it would work fine. But this last one, it wouldn't work at all. I had to go back to the previous Linux version. So if anybody feels like testing any of that stuff out, let me know. And uh, maybe we could provide feedback. And hopefully between one of us, we could kind of dig into what the actual problem is. Because people on the Mr. Team are all looking into it. The Ypsilon's checking, uh, Sorg's checking, Kitrinx is checking for us. So it's, you know, this isn't, no one's blowing this issue off. They're taking it seriously, but it's really hard to nail down what the actual issue is. And some of the people that had the issue, it just started working again. So it wasn't even that the Linux thing didn't work for them. It only really worked for me. And of course, we've tried many different types of Wi-Fi and all that stuff. So if anybody wants to, to help troubleshoot that, especially if you're uh, knowledgeable at the Linux side of things, that would be awesome. Or maybe it's just a glitch that you know a handful of people run into and I happen to be one of them. I, I don't know. It could be it as well. But it's just annoying for everybody. And it might be related, sort of. To what Tony's went through, but Tony, if your stuff's working, leave well enough alone, and uh, and you know just use your mister's property. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or twenty four seven in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. It's a serial wow said they're eagerly anticipating the RetroTINK 4K, but they have an odd conundrum. Just like phone chargers and USB cables, they find themselves in possession of many HDMI cables and no idea which ones support 4K, and which ones only support standard definition, no less factors like bandwidth, frame per second, HDR, etc. Is there a way to either tell or test, either through equipment or software or both, what HDMI standard a particular cable is? Obviously, they know that any original cables that came with their 4K OLED and PS5 are 4K compatible, and the pack-in cables with their pre-4K systems are probably older standards, but it would be really nice to know which cables are capable of what, so they could only replace the ones that are necessary as they transition more of their setup to 4K. So I have a couple of answers for you. First of all, I am 99.99999% sure that just trying a cable isn't going to hurt anything. The worst that could happen is you get speckles or color issues and you'll notice immediately or dropouts or something like that. So I would just give it a try. Um, now, 
That said, you could test them. I know the Apple TV has a way to test cables right into the settings. I use it quite often. Just try setting it to 422 color and see if it supports it. I think the newer consoles might have something like that as well. But here's a problem that I, uh, and here's a problem that I didn't ever expect to happen. What if you have cables that are ultra HDMI certified? How do you know they're still good? That's been a huge issue for me because I've had a couple of cables just stop working. And sometimes there are HDMI cables that I'm unplugging and plugging all the time. I very likely broke them. It just it happens when you treat things like tools. Sometimes they're going to break. But I'm also talking about a cable that I plugged into my TV and left it there for a year and a half without touching it. Suddenly my TV is getting dropouts and I think the TV is the issue because how could it be the HDMI cable that's never moved? And it was the HDMI cable. And when that happens, I cut the cable up and throw it out. I just, I don't want to waste, you know, I hate wasting anything, but wasting hours of my time is way worse than wasting a $10 cable, at least in my strong opinion. So, um, so you really, you kind of got to decide how deep you want to go down this rabbit hole. The easiest thing to do would be to just test them one at a time. So don't wire up a 10 HDMI cable system and start turning stuff on and wondering what's broken. Just test them one at a time. Double check if you have an easy setup, like a computer monitor that you could just plug it into. You could just test it like that and go from there and then see what happens. If everything's working fine, but one console keeps getting dropouts or uh, as you go to 4K or 1080p 120, if you start getting speckles or something like that, then try swapping out the cables from there. I always like to start with the free solutions uh, and then kind of step down. But it's not like it's not like testing SCART cables where you don't know if the right components are in and you might be sending high voltage. That's not usually something you would worry about with any HDMI device. So my suggestion would be to just plug it in and try it first and then go from there. I do have in my Amazon store Ultra HDMI certified cables that are not stupid expensive. They're not like a $400 cable that so many people have tried to sell me over the years. They're very reasonably priced, but I've never had issues even with 4K 120 when I was testing that stuff. So I'll leave a link just in case you want to upgrade. But my just in my opinion here, don't upgrade just yet. Just try them. If they work, awesome. And if not, then that's when you start swapping them out with better cables. Next up, Wyrock said, they hope I don't mind more of a philosophy question this week. No, I, I like that stuff. Uh, hopefully you don't mind my often long-winded answers to this stuff that's all opinion-based anyway, but uh, I'll keep, let's roll with this. So a lot of what we do in retro gaming sits in a weird crossroads between being done out of obvious love and respect for the hardware and software that we love tinkering with, but at the same time, much of that tinker tinkering actively goes against the wishes of the companies that made the products. One good example is the anti-modification laws in Japan. So what do I personally think about when it comes to that stuff? I have some very, very strong opinions about this. Um, first and foremost, if you've purchased a piece of hardware, it's yours to do whatever you want with. If you want to take a crap on it and light it on fire, that is your business, not anybody else's. The only time I, I would interject into that is if you're trying to push your opinions on other people or if you're trying to sell stuff that you've pooped on and lit on fire as if it's a well-modded console. And while I'm obviously being facetious, there have been some modded consoles I've seen that come very close to that description. Uh, the one that with the entire bottom was covered in glue is still my favorite example of that. But anyway, um, so start, you know, I always start with it's yours to do whatever you would like with. But I also like to approach these things from a 
future-proofing. And that's one of the reasons I started the hashtag NoCutMod so many years ago. And I love that most people don't even know that it was me that started that. And it was, uh, I started it, I think on the retro, I started it and then hyped it on the retro roundtable. And I'm glad it caught on because while, of course, if you want to cut a bunch of holes in your consoles, go right ahead. But what I was personally seeing a lot are consoles from the late 90s, early 2000s that had composite and S-video mods. There was one one company that was selling master systems with just a line of holes drilled down the back. Composite, S-video, stereo, audio, even though it was only a mono console, they just figured they would make it easier. And once people started realizing, hey, you know, RGB is actually the best quality you could get out of this, while uh, composite's fine, maybe I'd be better off getting an RGB cable, all of that was now ruined. There was just Swiss cheese in the back of that console for no reason for mods that you'll never use again. So that's kind of the future-proofing that I like to always talk about. Same thing with internal mods. So many of the mods that we put inside of consoles, if you wanted to, could absolutely be removed. Some might involve reconnecting traces that you cut. Some are going to be way more complicated. But if you needed or wanted to put it back to stock, you absolutely could if uh, with just a little bit of effort, especially with things like adding back RGB to the SNES Mini. Now, in my opinion, you're restoring functionality that Nintendo should have had because they always had before. But if you really wanted to, you could remove all of that stuff. So um, the only other opinion I'll, I'll bring up is I would say, and I think this goes a lot to do with the stuff that's been going on with Xbox and with the uh, Sio lately. I think that if you've bought somebody's hardware and you want to put your own software on it, whether it's a small indie company or whether it's an Apple iPhone or whatever else, I think that as long as you do that in a way that doesn't steal from the original, then there's zero things wrong with that. So here's an example. Let's say I buy an iPhone and I figure out a way to load Android on it because I like the size of the iPhone mini, but I want to run Android on it. I still had to buy that iPhone. I'm not reverse engineering anything. I'm not releasing anything that could allow people to steal that iPhone. I'm very simply just loading Android on it. And stuff like that, anytime anybody gets mad, um, there's more to it. There's They're crazy. They're not seeing it the right way. They're just emotional. Anybody that gets mad on stuff like that is um, missing the point. Or like in the case of Apple, they're just always trying to control the user experience. For better or worse, that's your opinion. But so, but the only time I would, I think that crosses a line is when it approaches cloning. So let's just say I reverse engineer the iPhone and then I put out all of this data that allows you to also reverse engineer the hardware and iOS. No, that's cloning and stealing. And even though if I did it in a clean room environment, it might not be legally wrong. It's still morally one of those like I wouldn't get involved in that uh, in a way where you could start manufacturing your own iPhones and putting iOS on it. I don't I don't think that's morally right to do in most cases. Now, if Apple stopped selling the iPhone today and five years from now, somebody's like, hey, we figured out a way to create more iPhones and we could put some stuff on it. Yeah, that's different. You're not stealing from people. It's not being made anymore. And we've run into that in retro gaming where people just uh, discontinue projects. They kind of disappear. So five, six, seven years later, it gets cloned, but it doesn't feel like a clone because you're not stealing from anybody at that point. But if you're just simply talking about, I bought this iPhone and I want to put 
Windows 11 on it, and I figured out a way to do it. And the only thing I'm doing is adding a different software to your hardware. I still have to buy your hardware. It's not taking anything away. And it's both 100% legal and morally right as well. So those are kind of my strong opinions on covering the gamut from console mods to software mods and stuff like that. Um, the Sio thing definitely got me upset. The uh, Xbox thing was alluded to that maybe that could lead to cloning, which I, I didn't see it. If that's true, I guess I would understand, but I didn't, that's not how it looked. That's not how it looked from either side, to be honest with you. So that one was kind of strange to see happen. I wondered what else was going on to make that happen. Uh, but those are just my opinions. As with all opinions, the more I learn, and I try to learn every day, but the more I learn about anything, the more info I have, and maybe my opinions will, will merge with that, or maybe they'll get stronger. I, I don't know. But those are kind of, as of today, you know, December 2023, those are my very strong opinions on all of those things. But it still comes back to, if you've bought something, it's yours. Do whatever you want with it. A couple of things from Jason Guffey. For first, any suggestions for someone who just got COVID, knowing that I had it a couple times already? Hell no. I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. I could tell you basic stuff like make sure to stay hydrated and take your vitamins, and a wave of idiots are going to come down on me for spreading COVID misinformation. So no, no disrespect, but I am not going there at all. But seriously, stay hydrated. That one's a given. Anybody that complains about that's a total f***ing moron and shouldn't even be allowed to post on the internet. But moving on. Uh, next, they recently bought themselves an LG C3 OLED using the Amazon link that I posted. Thank you, you demand, Jason. Um, but they also want to take advantage of the HDMI 2.1 capabilities and stuff like um, 4K 120. So what HDMI switches or splitters or any of that stuff are out there that could do that? So I have not gone down that road of testing yet because I can't find products that are reliably in stock that will do everything I want them to do. There's always one missing feature, or there's always something that doesn't seem right about the description, and a lot of them are like 200 bucks at the moment. So <clears throat> I think at the, what I would probably suggest is try using ARC for audio and see what happens there. So even if that means just for the short term, just for like a week or two, plug in your PS5 directly into the 4K 120 port of your OLED. Make sure that the ARC HDMI in-out is connected to your receiver's ARC port. And it should pass Dolby Atmos and everything that you need through there so you don't have to worry about if your receiver or your previous HDMI switches aren't HDMI 2.1 compatible. That shouldn't matter. Now, what I'm personally looking for is a couple of things. I have an HDMI audio extractor. I'll leave a link for that just in case it might be something that you would use, but you could end up plugging your console into that and uh, it should send HDMI 2.1, so 4K 120 to your TV and audio only to your receiver. So that wouldn't be using ARC, that would just be separating the audio. So that should work. Now, get it from the Amazon link, not just because of the affiliate link, but because if it, if you have any problems, you could just return it. And that was not expensive. But I would really like to see things like HDMI splitters that have all of those functionality. And the HDMI splitters that I've tried, they all work great, but they don't pass CEC and ARC. The one that I found that does isn't PS3 compatible. 
So it's going to be a rough recommendation because you would need to buy that, which is expensive. It was like 80 bucks and something else to use if you wanted to route it through your Tink 4K or something like that as well. So it's that's going to be tricky. And I also want to find HDMI matrix switches that are 2.1 that also have the same features. Now, I guess you don't really need ARC and CEC control if you're doing a matrix type of thing and you're, you don't mind using multiple remotes. But for me personally, when I pick up my Apple TV remote and I hit that button and the TV comes on and the Apple TV comes on and I just watch TV, if I want my stereo connected, which I often do, but not always, all I have to do is turn on the stereo. And if I don't, that's it. That's a really, for me, that's like an awesome feature. That's automation and simplification at its best. And that's the experience that I'm trying to keep whenever I add new products like that to it. So it was a really long way of saying I'm working on it. Um, and that's the best I could do for now is, you know, try plugging it in one at a time, try that extractor if it's something you think you would use, but give me some more time and I'll try to track down the best stuff. I wish I could go to CES and hunt down one of the vendors in the in the back, anybody that's been to CES knows what I mean. And even if I even if it came down to something where I had to buy 500 to have them made this way, and random, you know, the retro HDMI or something, I would do that, I would actually step up and ask a couple friends to help sell it through retro gaming stores, I would totally do that. But I need to know that it's the exact product that we're looking for. And you know, I would even take the risk, to be honest, and and trying to buy whatever minimum order we would need. The last time I looked into this was a very long time ago, and the order quantity was ten thousand. Um, they came right out and said, "Hey, this is a risk to make stuff like this, especially with PS3 compatibility. So we'll make ten thousand. We'll make it under a different company name. We'll white box ship them to you. You deal with it from there, and that's the only way we'll do it." So that was a long time ago. That was actually back when. Um, so many people had HD CRTs or HD projectors. And don't forget, if you bought an HD projector in the mid 2000s, um, that could have been 10, 20 grand. And the day HDCP was introduced, your projector immediately was obsolete. So we needed things like this in order for that to happen. So this has always been a thing that we needed. So I'll, uh, I'll keep at it. Um, lastly, uh, they have a fat PS1 that they'd very much like to install an ODE, an optical drive emulator into, but they'd also like to be able to keep using the disk drive. Is that possible yet? No, but I would just use either RetroNAS and load games off of the network, which is super easy if you're using RetroNAS to do it, or just load up either an, a hard drive or an SD card through one of those adapters and play your games that way. Most will work fine. It's not as simple as dropping games on an SD card like an ODE, but it will do everything that you need it to do. You could keep the original drive. You could load your, your games, your backups from hard drives. And maybe when the new MemCard Pro comes, we could have a little bit more advancements in loading games off SD, but it's still not going to be as fast. So that's all I would do. I would just try either using RetroNAS or loading a hard drive up and kind of going from there. And that that should be what you need, at least until somebody comes out with a really cool ODE solution for it. Lastly, John Viley wants to know if you could use a GamesCare SCART switch with a G-SCART switch. Did I get your name right, by the way? I always try my best, but I'm really bad at that. Um, so to answer your question, there is no technical reason why that wouldn't work. 
I haven't personally tried, but the only things that I would suggest, number one, most important by far, use a shielded SCART cable to connect the two. Otherwise, whatever one you have behind the other might introduce a ton of interference or audio buzz. So that's definitely something that is a must have. Or if you can't find one now, just get whatever SCART cable, but know that you should plan on getting a fully shielded high quality SCART cable in the future. Next, if you use the G-SCART's sync regeneration, you might want to put that last. That way, everything that goes through it could have that feature, as the Games, Games Care Switch doesn't do any sync stripping. I'm totally okay with that, by the way. I don't think that in most cases you would need sync strippers anymore. I don't think we ever really needed them in most cases. There was just a lack of knowledge as to why there were incompatibility issues. Nobody's fault. A lot of us were learning this at the same time, including some of the experts. But that's it. That's the only suggestion is get a really good shielded SCART cable. Shorter the better, of course. And then uh, if you need sync regen, G-SCART lasts. But if not, either direction should be fine. And it should work okay. If not, let us know and maybe we could figure out if there's a certain combination of stuff that doesn't work well or maybe one of them's always outputting a signal so it trips up the auto detection. That's always a possibility. And if that's the case, you would just want to get a power supply with an inline switch on it. But uh, other than that, I mean, it should work okay. So give it a try and let us know. And even if it doesn't, I'm sure we could figure out a solution. Well, that's it for this week. As usual, if you have any questions, post them wherever it is that you support, just in the latest Q&A post. The way these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an old post. Plus, as you saw today, I like just scrolling through in real time and kind of having a conversation as if we were hanging out somewhere. And anybody who supports on any of the services can do this. Very often, the questions are only on Patreon just because that's where most of the supporters are. But any support service, feel free. I really enjoy doing these and I really appreciate people uh, helping in any way possible because it really is all of you who keeps this stuff going. So... Uh, these Q&As are supposed to be a nice thank you to anybody who feels like doing it, and I certainly have a good time doing them. So thank you all very much, and I'll see you next week.